and yell at Fulvalsinus. Let's get Daniel chapter 11. And by the grace of God, we will finish the chapter this morning. We've been slowly working our way through the book of Daniel. But coming now to the, to the end, which leads me to say that Daniel 11 and verse 36, we are talking about end times. And from here on out in the book, uh, we are focusing on things that have not yet happened. All of this is stuff that will happen in the tribulation time. Uh, in chapter 11 so far, I have been using a series of slides and giving you historical references that go with the verses because the first part of Daniel 11 has already been fulfilled. It was prophetical when Daniel said it, but by now it has been fulfilled. If you look at the end of verse 35, though, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. So it's at this place in the chapter where Daniel moves from speaking about the time of Antiochus, 165 BC, all of that, what we now call history. And now he's going to shoot out to the, to the end. So let me tell you and remind you, when you're dealing with prophecy, you're looking through the glass darkly. Unlike the historical part of this where we can say Daniel prophesied this, but then it got fulfilled. Now we can, in those instances, we give you precise details down to what they said at the table, right? Because we have that in historical records. But it's not going to be like that moving forward. So we know what Daniel has said. We know what Jesus has said and other prophets. So we do have pieces to the puzzle. But Paul said when you're talking about prophecy, you look through the glass darkly. So we expect to come to a few points where we say, that's what it says, but I'm not quite sure what that means or how that's going to play out. So just know that there might be a question mark or two. I also want to say this, that as we move through the prophetical aspect of these verses, I'm going to try to balance the prophetical with some practical. Because I do believe that uh, that the doctrinal prophetical things should be, uh, we should be mindful of them and know them. However, I'd also like to give you some practical thoughts that might emerge from these prophecies. So let's begin verse 36 today. It says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. All right, this king that he's referring to here, in the chapter up till this point, for the bulk of it, we've talked about the king of the north and the king of the south. Perhaps you remember that, and that was Syria and Egypt. This king is neither one of those. This is a king that will rise up in the end times and take over the world. Slowly at first, he'll overcome three other kings and then take over a ten-king federation, and from there he takes over the world. And we read about that in this passage. But I want to show you, look at verse 40. At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. I point that out to you so you know the king of the south and the king of the north are two different people. They are not... The, neither of those are mentioned in verse 36, right? In verse 36, the king of the north and the south come against this end times king. So you understand him as a separate entity. Now let's look at this verse piece by piece. The king, this antichrist, shall do according to his will. I've pointed out to you before that the antichrist does not start off as a religious figure, but rather as a political one. 
He starts off, we studied this in Daniel 7 and and chapter 8, as a prince, and then eventually works his way up to be a king. Um, All of this stuff is actually talking about how he will behave at the very beginning of what we call the tribulation time. Even maybe before the rapture, we will start to see some of this. By the time we get to Daniel 12 and verse 1, then we know exactly where we're at as far as the timing. Daniel 12 and verse 1 is most definitely right in the middle of the seven years of tribulation. And when we get to that next week, we'll take a longer look as to how we know that. But now let's look at his behavior. The king shall do according to his will. This man is going to have a plan in mind for taking over the world, and nothing's going to stop him. Nothing. He will actually take over the world. The only thing that's going to stop this man from, setting out, uh, from accomplishing what he sets out to do is the Lord coming back. Nothing that the, no, no attempt of man will ever take this person down. He is that strong and that smart. Now, the practical lesson I would like to tie into that, people will say, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. There's truth to that, right? If you try hard enough, you can make pretty much anything work given the circumstances are right. But that's not always the best thing to do, right? As a Christian, our approach is not my will, but thine be done. So I think the lesson to be learned here, do not fall into the spirit of Antichrist, where I have a plan and nothing's going to stop me. I want my plan to work and no one will tell me different. No one will get in my way. And if they try, I will squash them. That's, That's the spirit of Antichrist. So be careful about being self-willed. As we're going to see as the verses progress, you'll see this, this attitude kind of play out. This Antichrist, he will not take advice. He will not listen. He won't take a rebuke. He, nothing. It's only his will. That's all that matters. And we, don't, we want to be the exact opposite of that. In verse 36, he shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Now, we know in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 4, the Antichrist will one day be assassinated. That happens right in the middle of the seven years. Then he will rise again from the dead. By, it's actually by the power of Satan that that happens. And when he, that event occurs, he goes into the temple and he will say, I am God. Now, that's actually a separate event from what you're reading here. Remember, chapter 12 and verse 1 is the midway point. This is well before that. So before he ever has that death, burial, and resurrection experience, he already in his mind begins to exalt himself and speak down about the God of gods, the the Almighty, the Creator, and, and puff himself up to say, I'm better than that. Now you might think that to be incredibly strange. How could anybody be so arrogant as to say the God of the Bible, the Creator God, Jehovah, is, is a small entity compared to me. You would think that to be strange, but when you look down through history, that's actually not a new thing. People have been saying that for a long, long time, and you will find people today. That many, many atheists approach it like that. They say, you and I as Christians, we are monotheistic. We accept one God. They say, you reject hundreds and thousands of other gods. We just take it one God further. That's a very famous line of theirs. You eliminate all the other gods and just accept one. Well, we eliminate all of them. But, but in, in saying that, what they're saying is this Jehovah that we worship is the same as all these other little gods. 
And, and, and they're speaking down as if he's a small entity. The Israelites did this with Baal and Ashtoreth. They actually put them on the same level and sometimes above Jehovah. They did it with the queen of heaven. In New Testament times, there was a man named Marcion the heretic. And he was a promoter of what you and I would call Gnosticism. And not to get into a long uh, teaching about that, but a Gnostic believed that there are two gods, one good and one evil. The evil God created everything. The evil, mean, vindictive, terrorizing God is the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah. And Marcion taught that the good God, who is light and goodness and spiritual, right, so in their minds, if it's material, it's bad. And if it's spiritual, it's good. And since Jehovah made material things, Jehovah's bad. And so in their mind, the, the good God, the gracious and loving God, sent his son Jesus to deliver us from the vindictive mean God, Jehovah. And you can see how this spirit of Antichrist, speaking down about the God of gods, it's happened many, many times throughout history. But this man, again, practical lesson, he's exalting himself, magnifying himself. What could we learn from that? Be careful not to think you're something that you're not. And, and I don't mean to say the Antichrist, right, he's on an extreme side of this, all the way above the God of gods, right? That's an extreme problem with pride. Very satanic, yes? Don't go all the way to the other extreme thinking you're fixing the problem and say, okay, he thinks the world of himself, I'm going to think absolutely nothing of myself. I'm useless. I'm worthless. That's too far the other way. What you want to have is a biblical uh, view of yourself. Okay, yes, I am a sinner. I am depraved. I'm inclined. I'm bent towards evil. I'm easily confused. I make mistakes. I mess up all the time. But God still loves me. He can still use me. I am moldable in his hands, and I can be made into a vessel meet for the master's use. So you see how you want to have a balanced view. But in so doing, when you look at yourself through the lens of the Bible, you don't magnify yourself. You understand that my value is found in, in the fact that my creator made me in his image. Sin broke me, and now he's fixing me. Right? So it keeps us right where we need to be. And then at the end of the verse, it says, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done the antichrist and god both have a plan for the end times the antichrist has his idea i'm going to take over the world and in his mind i will ascend above the stars of god i will put my throne above the throne of the most high i shall be like the most high i'm going to rule over everything in his mind that's how it's going to work and he's pushing towards that goal and God knows he's pushing towards that goal. And God knows that the Antichrist is going to be a horribly uh, terrorizing figure and kill millions of people. He will persecute the Jewish nation and try to wipe them off the earth and any other believer in God for that matter. God knows that. And God, in his infinite wisdom, knowing what the Antichrist will willingly choose to do, God does not make him do it, God knows what he's going to do. And God backs off because the Antichrist is accomplishing a particular purpose. The people of Israel denied Jesus as their Messiah. They said, away with him, crucify him. And the people of Israel need to be punished for their sins. 
So God steps back and says, Antichrist, you think you got a plan that'll work. You don't even realize that you are accomplishing part of my plan. You are the tool, you are the hammer, the axe in my hand to mold and make Israel into the nation they need to be. They need to be humbled and punished and purged to prepare them for the kingdom. So I am going to back off and let some horrible things happen, but as soon as I'm ready for that to end, I will step in and end it. Jesus, when he was explaining to his disciples how the end of the world would be, he talks about how the tribulation during this time will be the worst that the world has ever seen, worse than Noah's time, worse than any war. And he said, if you read it there in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, the, the time gets cut short. Because if God doesn't cut it short, the Antichrist would go on and wipe out all the Jews if he wanted to, if he could. But God says, I'm stepping in and cutting it short. So, this is a good lesson, I think. God draws a line. God draws a line. He says, okay, now, now watch this. Does God know the sins you're going to commit? Does he make you commit the sins? God's not the author of sin. Right? Does God know what you're going to choose? Yes. And that's why he's right here right now trying to persuade you to choose the right thing. Because you still have a chance to change your mind. You say, but God already knows what I'm going to do. That's God in the future knowing what you're going to do. The God right now here in the present. Because remember, God is in three places, three tenses at once. He's in the past, the present, and the future. He knows what you're going to choose, but that makes absolutely no difference in what he's doing right now. Right now, he's trying to help you make the right choice. Right? So God knows the end, but he didn't cause the end. There are certain things that God himself has decided to do, and nobody can overthrow those things because he is sovereign. He can make whatever laws he wants, and they will never contradict his nature. They will always be holy, upright, and just. But what God will do is say, mankind, you have a free will, and you're allowed to choose. Please don't choose this. Please choose that. Eat from any tree of the garden. Don't eat from that one, because you'll surely die. But then the choice is yours. See? Then God draws a line. He says, if you step over this line, I'm going to have to put my foot down. Now, I think that's an incredibly practical thought for us because sometimes we think, well, I'm sinning, I'm sinning, I'm sinning. God's not doing anything. I'm getting away with it. No, you're not. You just haven't reached the limit yet. Hold your place here. Get Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does God wait so long to come back? Because He's giving sinners a chance to change their mind. He's giving sinners a chance to react to the convincing power of the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 15, look with me at verse number 16. God speaking to Abraham about his plan for future generations of Jews. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. So your children will come back to the land of Israel. Watch the last part. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I always think of it as a glass. 
right? A cup. And when the Amorites sin, they keep filling up the cup. And God says, eventually, when you get that cup full, then you're going to experience my wrath. God knew eventually the Amorites are going to get there. They're going to cross that line. That's not what God wanted, but he knew that's how it's going to turn out. And God had a plan for that. God knows the Antichrist is going to push the envelope and take it as far as he can, and he will want to go farther, but God draws a line in the sand. Have you ever heard of this in 1 John 5? There is a sin unto death. There's a sin not unto death. You can pray for that. But if a person commits the sin unto death, don't even bother praying. Why? They crossed the line. You went too far. You filled up the iniquity. God said, you go one step further, and there's no coming back from that. See, God does draw the line. You might feel like you're getting away with it. You're just getting really close, tiptoeing that line. So God, in his sovereignty, says, here's the line. Your choice, how close you want to get to that. See? All right, let's come back to Daniel chapter 11. Perhaps that could be a sermon in and of itself, but Daniel 11 and verse 37, tricky verse. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. You know, that sounds very Jewish. This is one of about three or four verses in, in Scripture that makes it sound like the Antichrist will be at least part Jewish. Some say full-on Jew, some say half-Jew. I must admit, though, this, that's the language that you would use when talking about a Jewish person. That's how they talked about God, the God of their fathers. Neither shall he, and, and the fact that it's capitalized as well, I think, is interesting. But neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Right? To regard something or someone is to consider them, to pay attention to them, to look at them, to take heed, to be mindful of them. The Bible tells us the Antichrist will not regard the God of his fathers, any God, nor the desire of women. So it's one thing, I think it's fairly simple to see that he's going to disregard any other God, even the God of his fathers, which sounds like Jehovah, to say, I don't need them, I don't even accept them for whatever reason. I think that's pretty clear. But what about that phrase, nor the desire of women? He doesn't regard the desire of women. What, what does that mean? And here's where I bring you a question mark. I don't know. I wish I had a great answer for that. I don't know. So I'm going to give you a couple of ideas. We'll find out when we get to the other side of history what all this is about. Some have suggested, and I think this is fair, that he has some sexual strangeness. That he is, with the way things are working now, perhaps he's swept up in this LGBTQ alphabet type stuff. And uh, he doesn't know if he's a man or a woman, and he, he doesn't know. And, and he's in there somewhere. Some have said maybe just full-on homosexual, and that's why he has no desire for, but see, when you say that is desire for women, this says the desire of women. I don't know, maybe you can play with the language a little bit there. Perhaps this speaks to his sexual identity. However, it could be that he is an incredibly massive male chauvinist and says, I don't care what any woman says about anything. I'm not quite sure how that plays into the end time scenario. But I think you'd have to at least consider with the way this is worded, maybe the Antichrist will say, I'm only going to listen to one particular gender 
and not the other. I, again, I don't, I don't fully see how that fits into the end times, why that will be significant. So I'm okay with that. I'm okay to say I don't understand fully all the prophecies of the Bible. I'd be scared if I did. Because if I did, that means that any other man could have written this book. <laughs> but I trust that God in due time will show us how that works. And, and when we see it begin to happen, then we'll all go, oh. <laughs> we will have that aha moment where we go, I get it now. And I'm fine. I'm fine to wait until then to figure it out. When it says here, he won't regard any God, even the God of his fathers. He shall magnify himself above all. All right, let's think about that for a moment. What will he have accomplished up until this point of the tribulation? This is still the early days of the tribulation when this is happening. He will have accomplished world peace by this point. I'll show you now where he loses that. He will have accomplished world, world peace. Do you know how many Miss Americas, Miss South Africas, Miss Universes have been praying for world peace? <laughs> All of their prayers will be answered in this man. He will accomplish world peace. Let's not think, uh, 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 what can I say, little of that. That's a big accomplishment. He will create peace in the Middle East. Okay, just think of what's going on right now over there. Who in their right mind would say, yeah, we could sort that out? He will. He will disarm the world get everybody to put their weapons down, he'll take control over the weapons, actually, and then have world peace. You know what he's going to be able to say? I did something no other God ever did. Now think about that. Is there ever a time in history where Jehovah could say, there's world peace? Even Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Because he knew I'm, there's not going to be world peace until I'm sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Right? He will bring true and lasting peace. But this, this Antichrist is going to accomplish a pretty big thing. And no wonder he gets very boastful. All right, so what's the practical lesson that we might learn from this? The Antichrist says, I am so special, I don't need help from anyone else. I don't need to pay attention to what you say. No regard. He's not going to listen to, pay attention to, take advice from. I got a plan. I'm going to work my plan. I am completely self-sufficient. I don't need God's help. I don't need my wife's help. I don't need this, that. I, I am self. Be careful. Be careful not to fall into the spirit of Antichrist. The Bible says the mystery of iniquity doth already work. All right, so we are, as a society, it's, it's dangerous to... Fall, not to fall. We should, let me say it clear. We shouldn't fall into that trap of self-sufficiency. We should consistently be regarding, paying attention to, mindful of how much we need God's help and other people's help. I think is a good practical lesson to take from verse 37. Now verse 38. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. May the force be with you. For those of you that are George Lucas fans. May the force be with you. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. What are the forces? The forces are, it's actually the same word as verse 39 where it says strongholds. It's the same word, just translated two different ways. It's fortresses. It's military power. It's physical strength. Forcing people 
through aggression to bend to his will. Neither, uh, verse 38, sorry, but in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. So again, it kind of sounds as if contrary to what any Jew has ever done, he's going to have this new God that he attributes his power to. Remember, this is before Satan enters into him and controls his body and all of that. So this is him as a human saying these things. Obviously led astray by the devil though. And it says, a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold, silver. So he takes all this money and he dumps it into these fortresses to strengthen his military because he is going to rule the world and create world peace through force. Which is pretty much how the UN set out to do it. We will create world peace because we will have all the power to put you down if you come up against us. So if you dare try to fight me, I'll make sure you can't fight back. That's kind of his plan as I understand it here. Verse 39, thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God. <clears throat> Sorry. So the, the Antichrist builds these fortresses, has a great military and, and awesome military power, but he also calls upon some strange religious entity to strengthen the morale, if you will, of, of his army. He shall acknowledge, it says in the middle of verse 39, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. So he will make people think that this God who is behind all this military action, he is to be followed. And then at the end of verse 39, it says, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. So he's taking over territories. His idea is to eventually take over the entire world. And, and like I said, he will, but... The pronoun there is a bit, uh, it comes out of nowhere, it seems. He shall cause them to rule over many. Who is them? Well, do you remember reading in Daniel 2 about ten toes? Daniel 7 about ten horns? Right? And the Antichrist overtakes three and then eventually overtakes all ten. I'm assuming that those ten kings that rule alongside the Antichrist, they're the ones... Right? It says he will cause them to rule over many. They are probably the them. Now, the them could also refer to the strongholds in verse 39. So as the Antichrist builds these little fortresses here and there, these military outposts, he puts these various men in charge of those military outposts and thus creates kings. He makes kings out of them. So hold your place here. Get Revelation 17. All right, Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17, and let's look at verse 12. This is a passage talking about the Antichrist. He's referred to as the beast in this passage. In verse 12, it says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. So there's a particular time when the Antichrist will give them the authority to rule as kings. In verse 13, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. For what purpose? Verse 14, these shall make war with the lamb. So do you see, I... I, I I see in there some military power that's handed over to the Antichrist. And they think 
that their military power is actually enough to take down the Lord Jesus. So come back to Daniel 11. I believe that what we've read in verse 38 and 39 does play along with what we've read in Revelation 17 and how the Antichrist will use force to take over the world. Let me bring in a practical thought to this. The Antichrist will bully the world into submission. Do not allow the world to bully you into submission. They are going to make threats. They are going to consolidate their power. They are going to intimidate you. If you don't take the jab, you lose your job. Intimidation. If you don't get this stamp in your book, you can't travel. It's small ways, but we're building up to the idea of you've got to be terrified of your government to exist in that country. We're building up to this idea of letting the governments bully us into doing certain things. But in a spiritual sense, this is true. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, the temptation will be there, right? Because somebody will say something ugly, give you a dirty look. The temptation will be, oh, I just want to get along. I don't want to be rejected by the world. And don't be bullied by their ugliness towards you to conform to their image. We're going to talk more about that in the sermon today. But I think that's a practical lesson to gain from this. This is the devil's approach. He will surround you with his forces, spiritual and physical, and try to bully you into submission. Just understand that's the world's tactic. Don't bow the knee. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the music plays, bow the knee. King, we will not bow the knee. When the music plays, we will stand for God. And our God will and can deliver us. And if he doesn't deliver us, if we get thrown in the fire, we're still not going to bow the knee. We're not going to let you bully us into worshiping some other God. All right, Daniel 12, uh, 11 and verse 40. He says, and at the time of the end, you can see again, referencing this tribulation time, end times. Shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots <clears throat> and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Do you see how his kingdom starts to spread? He has fortresses strategically placed here and there in the world. Egypt and Syria come against him. Now he's not yet in Israel, but he's going to be. In verse 41, he shall enter also into the glorious land. That's Israel. So his headquarters is not going to be Israel to begin with, but it will become Israel somewhere in that tribulation time. All right, so I want you to hold your place here. Get Revelation chapter 6. And let's take a quick look at verses 1 down to 4. Revelation 6, verses 1 to 4. We're reading here about the beginning stages of the tribulation time. I believe it is parallel to Daniel 11 and what we're reading there. Revelation 6 and verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. Now, I believe the one sitting on that white horse is the Antichrist. He that sat on him had a bow. Right? He has a bow, but what does he not have? There's no arrows. He just has a bow. So there's, I believe that's a nod towards disarmament. But let's keep going. And a crown was given unto him. There's your political authority. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. 
He's pushing out and overflowing into all the lands. We just read that in Daniel 11. So there's world peace. Disarmed the world. Verse 3, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. Now that tells me something. If this guy is taking peace from the earth, that means in verse 2, there was peace on the earth. And then the next guy shows up, takes it away. So running that back into Daniel 11, there is peace. He has scared people into submission. But then Egypt and Syria says, enough of this, let's attack. And World War III, as we would call it, then begins. It says in the middle of verse 4 that they should kill one another and there was given unto him a great sword. Some sort of ma- a weapon of mass destruction comes into the picture. All right, now I'm just showing you that's the beginning of the tribulation time. As a result of World War III, a massive famine breaks out. Shortly thereafter, uh, death and pestilence, disease starts spreading over the globe and then a worldwide persecution starts. That's the rest of Revelation 6. I just want you to see how Daniel and Revelation go together here. All right, so let's come back to Daniel 11. Daniel 11 in verse 41, He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. All right, forgive me. I don't have a map to put on the wall today. If you have Israel right here, okay, and then you have the Jordan River, at the top you have the Sea of Galilee, at the bottom of the Jordan River you have the Dead Sea. Everybody follow me there? Okay. And then directly, if you go east of the Dead Sea, today we call that Jordan. It used to be called Transjordan. Okay. Jordan, that's where you have Edom. Uh, forgive me, Moab and Ammon. That's their land. Okay. Moab and Ammon, right next to the Dead Sea and a little south. Now, if you go Dead Sea to the east, Moab, Ammon, and keep coming down, pretty much what we would now call Saudi Arabia, that's where you have Edom. Okay, So I want you to see kind of in your mind, there are three places, biblically, three people groups that escape. Today we would just call it Jordan and Saudi Arabia. A very large concentration of Muslims are there now. But in the tribulation, they escape from the Antichrist. And interestingly enough, it looks as if they become, can we call it, undercover help for the Jews. Now, I'm not, please do not read too much into this. I'm not saying that Islam converts and Islam becomes, you know, uh, Jewish friendly. That, not at all. But I think there's going to be a small faction of, of, of Muslims that will realize what's going on and say, we, we got to work together with the God of the Bible and not the God of the Quran. Look at Isaiah 16. We're getting a little deep here. Stay with me. Isaiah 16. So Israel's going to have a, a few friends in the tribulation. People that convert to Christ in the tribulation, they, they will be friends for the Jews. We read about that in Revelation chapter 12, Matthew 24, different places. But take a look at this, Isaiah 16, verse 1. Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. So he's, he's drawn a map with his words. 
If you have the land from Selah to the wilderness, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion, you have pretty much where I drew you this dead sea here in the air. <laughs> All of the land east of that. Right? He says, send a lamb to that ruler, the, the one over all that land. Verse 2, For it shall be that as a wandering bird casts out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Moab's wandering. Somebody's chasing Moab. We just read in Daniel 11 who's chasing him. The Antichrist. And Moab gets away. Verse two, or 3, sorry. Take counsel, execute judgment. Make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the, moon, in the, midst of the noonday. Hide, hide the outcasts. Beray not him that wandereth. Moab, you got away. Now other people are going to be wandering and trying to escape the Antichrist. Hide them. You work as an underground railroad. Verse 4, let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler, Antichrist. For the extortioner is at an end, Antichrist. The spoiler ceaseth. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. And in mercy shall the throne be established. And he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. Moab, take care of my people. And when I show up, I'll take care of you. So in the tribulation time, Isaiah's prophesied about it. Daniel is acknowledging that these three places are going to be, let's say, outside of the purview of the Antichrist. And we know from Isaiah 34, we know it from Revelation 12 and other places, when Israel runs from the face of the Antichrist in the midway point of the tribulation, they hide in a place called Bozrah also known as Sila Petra, which is in the land of Edom. That's where they hide. Now, if you really want to go deep, as if this wasn't deep, <laughs> you read the book of Job, which has 42 chapters. And in the last half of the tribulation, there's 42 months. And you read about Job, picture of Israel, being persecuted by Satan, and Satan's trying to get him to turn on God, and he won't, but Job has three friends. And they're not really good friends, but by the end of the thing, you know what happens? Job ends up praying for them. And that's Israel getting to the end, saying, all right, we went through some rough times, but now God's going to bless, bless us double. We'll pray for you guys. That's exactly what Israel does for these other nations. All right, let's come back to Daniel 11 and try to finish up here. Verse 42, he shall, he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Here comes North Africa. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. So the Antichrist gains control over the economy of the world, and it looks as if, specifically, he's focusing in northern Africa. And now the Libyans and Ethiopians, which constitutes much of North Africa, at least, the, uh, let's say, the uh, northeastern side of it, they, they're at his steps. Please, we are dependent on you. Verse 44, But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. So the Antichrist is going to hear rumblings. He's already been fought against, right? He had some resistance from the Syrians and the Egyptians. Now the Egyptians have been pounded into submission. But then this expands even more. Now he hears from the north and the east. 
I'm going to say the East, you're probably looking at Russia and China. And they step in and say, okay, we're, we're going we're to step in now and try to straighten this out. And from the, from the uh, North, th- then you bring in all the European powers. And they step in and say, uh, we got something to say about this as well. And you can see how the battle just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Verse number 44, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he will. He continues to conquer, right? We read that in Revelation 6. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. And people continually come and fight. Verse 45, and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He will plant his palace between the seas. I would say that's between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea because that's exactly where Mount Zion is. It's between those two seas. He plants a palace there and then he has tabernacles. So think of it as like small pavilions probably where he's going to have his entourage and his bodyguards staying all around him thinking no one can ever touch me. He will probably... Right? When he takes over, he walks into the temple of God and says that he's God. And then he sets up his palace in the same city, in the same area. Why? Probably to overshadow the temple. And say, that was nothing. I'm God. Here's my palace. And he sets up this massive army to protect him. All around him. All these tabernacles. But, verse 45, yet he shall come to his end. And none shall help him. Now, that's quite a thought. Because the Antichrist will have control of the world's economy. He'll have control of the world's communication capabilities. He, he, he will control the internet, the flow of information, military power. And he has this massive army encircling him, protecting him. He will feel as if nothing can take me down. So much so that he convinces the world, basically, Come on, let's fight against Jesus as he comes back from heaven. We can take him down. Jesus, who? It is my lemon. Yeah, it is. But but, but that's, that's the attitude the Antichrist will put forth. Nothing can stop me. Well... You might, he, he's actually going to be defeated by all of his victories because he's going to win so many battles he thinks no one can take me down I have such a massive army such a massive following so many people believe in me the world worships me nothing can take me down okay until you get to the end the Bible says in Revelation 19 they gather in the valley of Megiddo the Antichrist the false prophet millions of soldiers in his army gathered to fight against the Lamb. Jesus comes back and the sword proceeds out of his mouth and wipes the enemy out. And Jesus says to his followers, stand back, I got this, I'll take care of this one. And while we're all fighting in other smaller places, Jesus treads the wine press from Jerusalem all the way up to Jericho, treading the wine press and the blood runs up to the horse bridles. And then when he's done stomping out the Massive army of the Antichrist. Millions perish. Jesus says, all right, Mr. Antichrist, come here. Your turn. And nobody's there with him. 
None to help. Nobody's going to deliver you out of, the, out of Jesus' hand. When it's time to him, for him to come and judge, <clears throat> he takes the Antichrist by the nap of the neck and tosses him into a lake of fire. So you can think, you can protect yourself with money, and I got money in the bank, and I got a massive savings account, and I got investments all over the globe, and I got so many friends and contacts. I'm well connected. Nothing could ever take me down. I have a plan. If you're not standing with Jesus Christ, you will not stand. There is none that can help. So even though there's a lot of prophecy here, I hope there's a few practical things that you can take home with you. Father, thank you for allowing us to learn this morning. It's a wonderful idea to know that you're coming back, and at the same time, it's a terrifying idea. So many people are going to be on the wrong side of this. God, help us to be moved with compassion. Bless our fellowship now in the service to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.